Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Hey everybody, welcome to the premiere episode of It Takes Balls. I'm Stephen Crocker, a stage 2B testicular cancer survivor and board member with the Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Today's guest is also a TCAF board member, an actor, a TV host, speaker, pilot, retired U.S. Air Force medic, and a two-time testicular cancer survivor. BJ Lang, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Stephen. So great to be here. Hello there to uh, the TC world who's tuning in. You are way more charismatic than me, and I love it. No, this is good, man, because uh, that means I can do a little color commentary, and you can take things more serious. That, this will give me freedom to be a little bit more goofy, so it's perfect. Perfect. All right. Thus, so- this, is, thus this is also proof that, like, it's different people who get testicular cancer, right? This is like the it could be it could be anybody out there could be anybody um so let's let's get right into it let's start with um give a little bit of your background and how you came to find that you had testicular cancer because you had it twice two times correct yeah i sure did well uh my situation i think was a little bit different in that uh one i was 35 years old i had enlisted into the air force reserve And I was gone doing some training uh, on active orders for the military when in September of 2015, I realized that my left nut was slowly getting bigger. Uh, There was no pain. There was no, um, you know, there was really, it was just a matter of enlargement for the most part. It was a little uncomfortable, but I wrote it off like most people uh, at first. Like it, it wasn't so much of a denial thing, more so than I was saying, oh, I'm running every day. I'm taking supplements. I was in the military trying to keep up on stuff. So my body's adjusting. So for the first few weeks that I really noticed it, uh, I just, just wrote it off. And then uh, in September, uh, again, of 2015, Uh, I went to uh, the clinic and one thing led to another and then over to an ultrasound. And so uh, at the end of September, I had a left radical orchiectomy to remove my left testicle. And then uh, I did chemo in December of 2015. Um, And then basically, I guess a year and nine months or so in the summer of 2017, uh, at this point, I had been placed on temporary medical retirement due to the cancer. Um, I went in for a follow-up CT scan, and it had uh, relapsed into my lymphatic system and my left uh, aortic lymph nodes down in my abdomen. So what was, um, you know, like you, mine was, my left testicle was slowly growing, and um, I was afraid to go to the doctor because I kept looking it up, and testicular cancer kept coming up as a, as a possibility. And, and I didn't want to see that. So I kind of just pretended that it wasn't happening. So when you, when you noticed it, you said you were, you know, active and healthy and you thought it couldn't happen to you. Yeah. 
that is exactly the truth, Stephen. I was, when I tell you I was at the best shape of my life, that, that is an understatement. I mean, I was in, in my life, that was the pinnacle of my health, believe it or not. I was running 5Ks every day, I, you know, without even breaking a sweat. I was very proud of myself. So, and that's how a lot of my, uh, you know, journey with cancer affected me in multiple ways. You know, as, as we all know, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, the physical cancer. There was a lot of a mental uh, part too, because of my loss of work and uh, things like that and how it affected my military career. And it kind of just slowly crept into other areas too. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the kind of diagnosis process. So when you, when you first went in, um, you know, when was the first time you heard the word cancer? When I went in, uh, in September of 2015, uh, to the troop medical clinic at Fort Sam Houston, I, I don't think I heard cancer at that point. Uh, it was um, the, the, the physician's assistant who, uh, palpated and, uh, you know, examined, uh, what I was there to present, uh, just said, okay, we're going to put an ultrasound, never said, you know, what it could be. So I was just like, okay, you know, maybe it was an infection, you know, something like that, it could, you know, epididymitis, who, who knows it could be anything. Right. So, um, I went to the ultrasound. Uh, I remember seeing the ultrasound results before I actually heard from any of the providers, and the actual terminology that they use, and I have it somewhere on my social media, you can see it. It says left testicle is approximately the size of a small orange. Okay, like that was the actual terminology. Wow. Okay. Now, that didn't shock me as much as what I heard here. And at this point, for clarity, I had not completed my nursing program yet, which I was in the middle of doing in my training. Uh, to understand what this meant. But the next sentence said, right testicle remains unremarkable. And I was offended by that, to be honest, <laughs> Stephen. I was kind of offended by that. But now I know what that word means. So uh, I went to the ultrasound and got those results back. Uh, that led to me going to see the chief urologist at San Antonio Military Medical Center, what used to be Brooke Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And uh, he examined based on, uh, those, those results. Uh, and he goes, mm, that needs to come out. And I said, like, do we know what it is? And he goes, it's probably cancer. Uh, and I said, well, you know, probably can't, can't we do like a biopsy? Can't we figure it out beforehand before I yeah. lose this thing? And, uh, he's like, I I've seen so many and that I'm aware and you're going to, you know, you could totally live with one. And I said, but what about a biopsy? Like, is that a feasible thing? And he goes, well, we could, but it could spread. And then I, then I realized it, uh, before I, I really let all of that sink in, he goes, you know, this is a training hospital. Would it be okay if we invited some of the other students to come in to kind of see it? And being a lifelong learner, I was also older, you know, I was 35. I taught high school. I, I, I teach workshops in college. So like education is important to me. So I realized this is a good opportunity to possibly help another man's life. And I said, yeah, sure. Not realizing what I had opened myself up to. And before I knew it, there was about 13 young lieutenants who were going into urology and they are all taking their turns, you know, palpating me. Wow. Uh, yeah. 
and this uh, this colonel who was the chief of urology, he goes, you know, are you doing okay? And I said, sir, with all due respect, this is the most excitement I've had since basic training. <laughs> so, uh, but but hopefully that you know that really kind of helped uh, people to to get some experience and. Um, he goes, you know, we're going to schedule you for surgery. And I went, Oh, great. Like I'm right in the middle. I start my nursing program here in a couple of weeks. So that'll be the perfect spot for me to be able to do the surgery. And he goes, no, no, we're doing it tomorrow. And I, and I had Stephen, I had never been admitted to a hospital like overnight as you know, since I was like a baby, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I, I never had surgery. I've never been in this situation. So there was a little bit of like, okay, you know, but it all happened so fast to me. And I was in such great health and I, you know, had faith in my doctors and in the system, you know, cause I'd already worked in the military and medical uh, field at this point, I was really starting to grasp what that would, what, what that would be like. So I, to be honest with you, it didn't see, seem like that big of a deal. It wasn't until my relapse where I think a lot of truth and, life and my situation and really what a cancer diagnosis means. Um, I didn't get that confirmation until I want to say maybe a week later, something like that, like the first week of October, uh, they called me back over to the hospital. And then that's when I was told by the urologist, yes, you know, we, we got the pathology back. It is uh, a testis cancer. Now at this point I was stage one B at least back then. Yeah, I believe that's what it was. Um, but when I relapsed, obviously that meant that my initial diagnosis, uh, it, it, uh, it jumped up and I want to say it was like two C or something. I, I, I don't exactly remember. Um, and, and there, what, there has been some talk over the last year, as a matter of fact, cause I'm right now I'm four years out from remission. I still have a year to go mm-hmm. until I'm considered cancer free. Uh, but I was talking to my hematology oncologist now at the VA in Los Angeles, where I'm at. And he believes that it's possible that my initial uh, regimen of chemo may not have been enough. And that's actually why I relapsed. So that initial diagnosis could have been incorrect. Wow. And it's just jumping back really quick. It's interesting that you say you had your surgery the day after you saw the urologist, because that was the same for me. I wonder, you know, doing this podcast, if that'll be kind of a common thing that people just go right the next day. Yeah. I mean, obviously you, you, the urologists know, and they want to, you know, get it out of there. Why keep it in your system? Um, You know, even if it is, but like, and I know that was your initial point in asking me, Stephen was, you know, how did it feel when you hear the word? And it wasn't like I was, it wasn't like I was scared at first. It was more of like a, Hmm, well, what the hell am I going to do? You know, how does this work? Yeah. And, and, and I also have to set the table here to tell the listeners that like, I was in a point in my life where I was in training and I was focused on getting through my military medical education so that I can return to my part-time job out in, in Hollywood. You know, that's, that is my real life. You know, th- this military thing, I was just doing it part-time and I was just like, okay, great. Like, let's just do this next thing because this affected me. I was only supposed to be gone for like 98 days uh, from LA and I was gone for a year because of this. Wow. So it really, it, it really kind of, you know, dug its way into so much more of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. 
I, I do think that a lot of people are going to say pretty soon after either they were seen by a urologist or um, they got an ultrasound or whatever, that that triggered that surgery immediately. Would be my guess. I, I don't know. We'd have to talk to one of our docs to find out. Yeah. Do you remember what your pathology was? Uh, it was seminoma. Man, I... I should crack open my testicular cancer awareness foundation little booklet that I created. It had, it broke everything down in which by the way, we have it up on the website. You can check out testiscancer.org If you would like to get one of these for you or a loved one who's been diagnosed with testicular cancer, it kind of breaks down everything and answers all the questions. So you always know in case Steven Crocker ever calls you to do a podcast interview <laughs> and you need to remember everything. I should have looked at it before this interview, but yeah, it was a uh, seminoma, uh, and like, I, I don't remember the precise sizes of everything as far as the tumor on my left nut, but it was the size of a small orange, according to that uh, report. That's pretty decent size. And you know, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've heard of, you know, small ones and I've heard of way, way bigger ones than oranges. I mean, it's just, it runs the gamut. Sure. A, a friend of mine, uh, Dan, uh, he, who was really my first person that I ever talked to about testicular cancer. Cause I, I didn't know anybody other than like people that we know in the, you know, um, celebrity world who have been diagnosed, you know, so like, but I didn't know anybody personally that had TC except for my buddy, Dan. And in his case, it wasn't his nut that presented with the tumor, but it had wrapped up around some of his organs and his lower abdomen. And when he got in a car accident and they did a CT scan, that's when they were like, hey, did you know you have testicular cancer? So, yeah, different ways to present, I guess, with the same disease. Yeah, that's interesting. So, okay, so talk about your chemo. You said that it wasn't, you know, in hindsight, they think maybe it wasn't enough. Which um, regimen did you receive? Yeah, so, uh, in fact, now, I was, like I said, stage 1B at this point. Uh, I had just done the surgery, I want to say two weeks before, and I was presented with an option. So according to the, and I don't know if these have changed, but at the time, the NCCN guidelines were at this uh, type of uh, testicular cancer, at this staging, uh, your options are surveillance, so I could just watch it and do nothing. Um, I could do one round of carboplatin. Um, or I could do a little bit of radiation and to, I didn't have any idea what would be the best choice. So of course I talked to, I got teamed up with a radiation oncologist, uh, there at the military, uh, a hematology oncologist. And of course I was talking to my urologist and I was asking them what all they would do and answers and you should do this you should do this so I really had to sit and think about it so I did a little bit of research and I was looking around and of course that's how I came across um, um, Dr. Einhorn and, and hearing about carboplatin and seeing what they would do my mom actually uh, took my file sent it over to Dr. Einhorn he said I suggest you you do surveillance um, so so that was you know to hear from an expert there at least in the TC world kind of gave me at least not maybe not an anchor uh, for an idea, but it just, it presented, you know, with more options uh, on what I should do. Um, I wrote down every day cause I was still in training, mind you. It wasn't like I was just sitting around going, you know, what am I going to do? You know, it's twiddling my thumbs. Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out what the hell is going to do with my life. 
So every day I wrote down on my mirror and I'm interested to hear like how people decided for themselves. You know, I, I should also set like the demographic stuff here. I'm, I was 35, single, no kids, have a full-time professional acting career in Hollywood, part-time in the military. Um, so how do I make this decision? I knew that if I did chemotherapy, like this is attacking all over my body and that I could get, you know, really sick or, I, you know, I didn't really care too much about losing my hair because I knew it would grow back, even though my receding hairline is already <laughs> starting to work its way down. So, so there was a little bit of that. Um, the fear of both radiation and chemo, of course, is long-term effects. You know, how would that affect me? Uh, and then doing surveillance, it's like, do I just do nothing and hope or do I do something? And if there is something there that could spread, do I do that in the hopes of, you know, nipping, nipping it in the bud? So I uh, wrote down every day on my mirror, you know, chemotherapy, and I would see it in the morning when I woke up. And then when I got home from school, I would see it and then I would erase it and I'd write, you know, radiation. And I think it took about a week or so of me to decide that I should do the chemotherapy. It had the best results. So I did one round of carboplatin, um, which really doesn't sound too horrible. And to be honest with you, it wasn't that bad. And I think probably because I was um, in really good health, I ate really well back then. No judging. <laughs> Donuts are delicious. Um, so I did one. I did one round of carboplatin, and um, I noticed a few weeks later that I did have some side effects. Believe it or not. So the the um, the platinum agent is known to have ototoxicity. So I did have a little bit of like tinnitus uh, that was happening. Mind you, I was always around aircraft, you know, I was in the military, so I was around weapons. So there could have been a mix, but from the time that I entered the military to the time I left, which is following post chemo, I did have hearing loss. So I had high frequency hearing loss and I currently wear awesome hearing aids thanks to the VA. Um, and then when I relapsed, in my lymphatic system, I went through radiation and they chose radiation because uh, of the side effects that I had from chemo the first time. They just, I was already exhibiting nerve damage um, and I can't confirm a thousand percent that it was the chemotherapy or was it, you know, lifting patients all the time, you know, and just military use of my body. I mean, who knows, but uh, the small fibers, generally the neurologist is saying that's probably what was affected due to the chemotherapy. Um, so it kind of frayed my nerves a little bit. So we chose radiation and I did 28 days of radiation in my lower abdomen in 2017. Talk about the radiation because I don't have much experience with that. So, you know, and I don't even know, is that something that they still do often? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, radiation therapy. Uh, you know, maybe if there's some sort of contraindication, why uh, a patient shouldn't get chemotherapy and of course consult with your, your, you know, your, your providers, uh, and, and get their insight. But, um, this was targeted to a specific area. You know, I was a little worried that maybe, yes, of course. Okay. Here's, here's big picture BJ at the time. You know, I get my relapse, uh, diagnosis following the um, CT scan. And I read it. I actually read it in the report before they even called me. I was like, damn it. Like it came back. Like I, 
I saw it, you know, I was actually out at an air force wounded warrior event, um, in the, in, in the beginning of the summer. CT scan. So like the beginning of July is when I was notified. So I was up at off at air force base, Nebraska, and I logged into, uh, my health report uh, on the VA website. And I, and I read this, you know, report from the radiologist and I went, you know, damn it. Like it came back. So, you know, what was, what was that going to do? And when I realized it was in my lymphatic system, that really scared me. And here's why, uh, my stepmother at the time had relapsed her cancer and she was not doing well. Um, my stepmom had ovarian cancer, uh, and unfortunately a year later had, had passed away, uh, due to it when it went to her brain. But, you know, that's kind of the, the, your lymph, your lymph nodes are all over your body in your skin, which is the largest organ in your body. And in my mind, I immediately went to like the worst case situation. You know, I catastrophized everything at that point because it felt to me like the boogeyman had come out of the closet. Cause I really did think, Oh, I'm going to be fine now for the next four, four and a half years. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be cancer free. I will never see this again. Like it, cause everyone was like, you got testicular cancer. It's the best cancer. You know, it's so, it's so treatable. And yes, it is. Uh, but when you, when you relapse and I think you deal with it a second time, especially considering someone who like didn't really care about it the first time, um, it kind of was like, no, no, hold on a second. Now we're going to, we're going to give you a little bit more life here, uh, to have to deal with. So, um, radiation was, uh, pretty, uh, well, I guess instead of me trying to verbalize what it is, let me walk you through what it was like. Yeah. So <laughs> obviously my mindset was, I was nervous. I knew that I would have to, uh, be going to, I, I, I chose to have the VA do my, uh, radiation. Cause at this point I had already established care at the VA. So I had a hematology oncologist who did not see oversee this, but of course I was still consulting with him because of the previous diagnosis. And then, um, my radiation oncologist who is amazing. This guy, um, Michael Chung at the West Los Angeles VA medical center is, uh, is just fantastic. I mean, he was so helpful to get me to understand everything and you know how this was going to work. So I had to be scheduled to come in and do uh, a SIM, you know, where they're going to do a simulation. So they're going to uh, put me into the system. They're going to show me how I'm going to lay on the table. Uh, they're going to, I actually, here you go. This is a fun one. When you get radiation, you get tattoos or you can get tattoos. So I never had any tattoos, always wanted to have tattoos, just don't have any. Um, so they said, Hey, can we, can we put three little dots on your belly uh, and on the side so on your sides so that we can put laser spots on where it's going to target. So basically they don't have to guess it will always be in the same precise spot. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, um, let me heighten that situation with this a side effect, just like chemotherapy and radiation uh, of getting those treatments is possibly cancer because you're getting more radiation, right? Like you're getting more and, you know, that could possibly be a possible, you know, issue down the line. So uh, I was really worried about my organs, you know, in my lower abdomen. And 
I was told that I would receive a lot of radiation in my lower abdomen and that it could be possible that I could have liver or kidney failure in the future or issues from this. Uh, the most immediate issues I noticed were my guts, you know, like my intestines. Uh, those were uh, really affected by the amount of radiation. Like I had terrible diarrhea, uh, a little bit of anorexia because I was vomiting all the time. You know, your lymphatic strip on your abdomen where I was getting targeted a lot uh, for that, for, for the, for the radiation um, led to a lot of nausea. And unfortunately, and I, I have to bust Dr. Uh, Chung's uh, chops a little bit. And this was a total, total uh, a fluke. Of course, he didn't do this on purpose. But when I went to do my first treatments, you know, we were trying to set up ahead of time what my medications were going to be so I can be on top of everything. And of course, the nurse was putting it in. And, and I think he had forgotten to put in my Zofran. Uh, Shout out Zofran. <laughs> yeah, right. Shout out to Zofran because... <laughs> And if you're not doing it, you know, on the regular, like if I would skip one, like I would totally be feeling it, but he forgot. So that first night when I came home after it, I, I was puking like crazy. There's a video uh, on my Facebook uh, for that of, of, of me doing that. I was trying to do stand-up comedy while vomiting. Anyway, wow. Um, I was trying to make the best I could, Stephen, with the situation. Yeah, you have to send a link. We'll have to link to that in the description of the podcast. Good. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. Um, the, uh, so the setup in the, in, in the simulation, you know, they got a target where it's going to be cause they want to try and pinpoint it at all angles. So this, and I don't know the technical terms, so I apologize to anyone out there who is a radiation therapist. My apologies. I'll just say the machine. I know there's tungsten on the other side that like grabs the beams or whatever, but anyway, uh, this machine is going over me at a, at a precise pattern, which is blasting down radiation to hit this enlarged lymphatic area um, and cut to like, I don't know, week two or something like that of rate. And I'm going every day, Monday through Friday to go do this. I was getting very tired. Uh, I had a part-time job that I was working at the time, you know, my, my part-time actor job, you know, the day gig, as we would say uh, that unfortunately I was so sick. Like I couldn't work that part-time job because I was going to treatments every day. So like, you know, I'm going at eight o'clock in the morning to the VA, which is far from my house in LA, as far as traffic is concerned, cause it's LA. And then by the time I would get done and drive home, I would either be so exhausted or I would be so nauseous. Just the idea of me trying to then, and I did for a few weeks, um, I was going to work every day, you know, my doctor's like, what are you doing? Like you're are you, are you working? I, yeah, I got to work. You know, I can hear my dad's voice in my head. You got to work, son. You got to keep working. And um, it just wasn't a good idea because why on earth would you want to be driving a company vehicle and be Mr. Excitement, which was kind of my job at the time, being Mr. Energy. Mm -hmm. uh, while I'm going through this, it wasn't good. So I got, I got put on um, uh, temporary disability through the state. Uh, uh, which is similar to like an FMLA, you know, different, uh, different situation. But basically I got put on that. Um, I forgot where I was going with this, Stephen, but I, but I, I ended up for, for like week two, I came in to go do the radiation treatment and I lay down and I put my hands back and I hold on to the things like I always do. My, my, 
bellies exposed and the lady, you know, the machine is inside of a, a room um, just like x-rays, right? Where they, uh, they need to shield it for, because there's radiation being beamed. So like this door is like this thick, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like a foot and a half thick, you know, and they, they walk in. It's like, if I, if I could only hear and I couldn't see, and I hear them open the door. Cause you could hear, you could feel the air in, in the room go, you know, as they open the door, like, I feel like I would be on a spaceship or, you know, like they should be walking in wearing spacesuits, uh, <laughs> the therapists that come in. So I'm holding on to this thing, right? I'm holding on to the machine and I'm ready. And they're saying, okay, here we go. And they always try and play like nice music as if your mind's not going, I'm totally getting radiated right now. Like, you know, they're trying to play like nice soft rock, you know, to like ease the tension. Cause your mind's going nuts. Um, and I'm laying there in norm. I know the machine, the process. Cause I have for the preceding 14 days, I had seen it, you know, and I, I, I memorized what it does. And for three minutes, you know, I'm getting radiation, you know, but it takes a few minutes to wind up and then turn off and, and I'm laying there and it's been like seven minutes and I can hear stuff, but it doesn't seem right. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, they are cooking me. Like I am getting cooked on the inside. And I said, Hey guys, like, am I going to die on the table? Like what is going on? And, uh, over the speaker, they're like, Oh no, Mr. Lang, we had to reboot the system. I'm sitting there thinking like I'm dying. <laughs> wow. So, so that was, uh, that was interesting. Um, you, you can, afterwards, I felt it. It's not like I can feel it immediately blasting through me. It's not like, you know, I don't feel like a bunch of heat and all that stuff, but afterwards, like my skin, uh, you know, I got burned a little bit, um, some dryness in the area where I was targeted, um, you know, and just dealing, I think both with, um, a lot of the, the unfortunate diarrhea because my intestines, you know, they got so much radiation that like the inside of your guts, like our, our, your intestines are catching food as it passes through because it's kind of like scar tissue, I guess, mm-hmm. inside your intestines. So it, so it, it kind of, you know, I was having discomfort. Um, I was dealing with a lot of, uh, nausea obviously i was puking quite a bit so like that zofran was my best friend um yeah that i mean that was pretty much it my mom came in to flew in from texas to come help me the last like i don't know probably two weeks i guess of of my treatments and so that went from i started uh radiation therapy in august of 2017 i think until like maybe the middle or end of September, 2017, something like that. Mm-hmm. So around, around that time period. Talk more about, um, you said initially you were working and, you know, you, you chalked the tinnitus up to being around aircraft and, and then you eventually were, were put on uh, what you kind of likened to FMLA. Sure. When I went through it, my doctors had said, you know, the, one of the best things that I could do and, and mind you, I work a very, low, you know, not very strenuous job, but they said, you know, keep with routine as much as possible. So when you, when you did have to stop, I mean, was, how did that impact you? As far as, uh, the chemo or the radiation? When you had to, when you had to go on the leave. Okay. 
So at this point, and again, going back to chemotherapy, when I was on active orders, you know, that I, I took convalescent leave, of, I think of like two weeks to like, just kind of reset my body. And then I came back and finished my training and uh, did some clinical rotations. So like, that was all good. Of course, I got put on temporary medical retirement from the military, but that's a whole different discussion on how that affected me. But going forward into 2017 and my relapse and the radiation, uh, the, the problem that I was having was uh, I worked a job uh, without saying what it is here for the interview, but I worked for a company where I had to be super energetic, enthusiastic, uh, fun-loving, and that's who I am as a person anyway. Uh, but I was going through this treatment, which was making me tired. I was dealing with um, fear. And a lot of the mental health side of things really started to kind of uh, come out, uh, you know, from the periphery of this whole journey that I never really dealt with at this level. Um, and I knew that I... I knew that I needed to take care of me. And so when I, when I talked to my doctors and I said, Hey, I should say when I spoke to my doctor, um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this. And he was like, yeah, like you're, you're working. And I, I mean, there were days where I was driving and I was so tired from the radiation. I mean, it just wears you out that I pulled over on the side of the freeway to like, just take a nap, you know, or just, hang on for a second, just in the hopes that I can make it home. And then what am I going to do? Change clothes and go to work. Like, so, um, talking to them and having the ability to be able to go on this leave was very helpful for me because my job at that time really was to take care of myself on top right. of, so, and I'm not just talking about doing radiation. I'm still talking to my hematology oncologist at this point I was still this is maybe a year and a few months since I had officially come over to the VA to take over my health care so like I have neurology appointments I'm talking to my primary care I at that point I had so many doctor's appointments that when my mom came to come visit me and the VA always says would you like a printout of your appointments I normally put it in a digital calendar anyway but just for fun I'll print it out so I can make sure I got them all on my calendar and she goes Oh my God, there was two pages full of upcoming appointments. Some of course were the radiation therapy, but you know, everybody, everybody from acupuncture to, I just had so many appointments that that became my job to go to take care of myself as far as medical stuff is concerned. And then eventually things kind of eased up and yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to listen to your body. Yeah. You, and you really need to advocate for yourself. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize when they deal with something like that. Um, you know, parents, especially like you, you're so used to taking care of kids or in my case, like I, I'm a wonderful advocate for everybody else. And I love taking care of my patients. You know, I still work in the pre-hospital care setting now and I love taking care of my patients and advocating for them. But oftentimes I find myself not being the best advocate for myself. And that's something that I'm still learning. Yeah, I agree with you except I don't work in a hospital. <laughs> That's a, soon, soon. You want a job? I, I Maybe I'll get you a job. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, okay. So as a comedian, I mean, did that, 
did that help you at all? I mean, you you talked about when you were talking to in the early stages when you had the 13 people checking you and you, you had that remark. I mean, is that something that helped you get through and and to cope? I I think so. Uh, So I'm going to, there's, there's probably different levels of how comedy influenced my journey on the one hand, just me as a person. uh, And I think this is really because of my family and the way that I was raised with my brothers. Um, Humor always found its way to be able to break the tension or something that's awkward. If you ever work in law enforcement or as a first responder, EMS, fire, uh, I notice, and some people will say, and veterans, that we have a dark sense of humor and, and some more dark than others. But I will say the, and people get that confused with the ability to be able to crack a joke when things get uncomfortable, to be able to break the ice as a way to like smooth over everything and open communication. Um, Notably what comes to mind for me in that, in this, so that I can share a little bit of uh, an experience. I was working as an air force medic uh, at SAMC, San Antonio military medical center uh, which was a level one trauma center. We had a woman that got hit by a car. She came in. And I remember after this very traumatic uh, patient and she's wheeled off to the OR, myself and a few other uh, medics were cleaning up the trauma bay, you know, and it, it, it's always a mess after something like that. So, uh, and there was a lot of younger folks in there, you know, and I was older, you know, I was 35 when I was uh, doing this. So, uh, people weren't talking, you know, it was very, I think it was a very serious situation. We had seen something that, uh, we probably didn't expect to see at that level. And I cracked a joke in there and it kind of just, you know, not only did it make everybody laugh, but it was like, it opened the lines of communication of, you know, everybody laughs and, Oh man, like that was crazy, huh? Yeah. No kidding. And, you know, and it gets the opportunity to do that. So I think uh, my comedy, uh, not only as a improviser and as a comedian in the, in the acting sense, uh, and, and that is my personality, but I think also the theory that I teach and that I have been professing for so long. So uh, I teach improv comedy and in improv, we have two words and those words are yes and right? That's kind of the base theory, the kitchen sink rules of improv. And when my cancer relapsed, I really needed to go back and remember what I had been telling these people for so long to be able to move forward. You know, there were days where I didn't want to get out of bed and I was very depressed and I was mad that like I was sick again and like that I felt like crap because I'm not working my job. And then, you know, I'm not going out on auditions and I wasn't spending the time that I need to, to be able to submit for jobs and do the whole business of show business that I do every day because I was sick. And so that depression sunk in uh, on top of the fact that I was dealing with stuff from my employer, which is a whole different discussion. But so I was dealing with all of this and I needed to go back and say, now, wait a minute, you tell people on the daily that an improv, we say yes. And, but I'm not yes anding myself. I'm not accepting this reality so that I can take care of myself and say it is okay where I am and then put one foot in front of the other, which is the, to say and, and say, okay, good. It's okay. Whew. Yes, this is happening to me. And today I'm going to do this. 
and today I'm going to do this and slowly working my way back up. But as far as material comedy is concerned, I went from, because uh, I occasionally do stand-up, I went from talking about just observational stuff to probably about 80% of my material switching to cancer comedy and really talking about living life with one nut because although truly I don't care that I have one nut, it is a good way for me to not only be able to deal with it myself and all of the things that come along with a testicular cancer diagnosis and having an orchiectomy, uh, but it also opens the mind of the audience to maybe knowing a little bit about testicular cancer and be able to advocate that way. So comedy definitely changed uh, uh, because of my cancer diagnosis, but I think the cancer diagnosis really made me a better comedian because now I have a different filter to be able to see through a different lens to look at things that I didn't have before. That's great, man. You're, and you're killing it. So let's segue from there into what you're doing now. You're on the TCAF board. You uh, moderate the virtual conferences. Yeah. Et cetera. I try to do whatever I can, Steve. And I'm like my ex-girlfriend. I get around. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to make things happen. So uh, obviously I, I came across TCAF. I, I met Kim Jones, you know, the founder of TCAF and I heard her story, uh, you know, and her connection, uh, with her son, Jordan and, uh, his unfortunate passing, but her advocacy really spoke to me and I always wanted to help out in any way that I could. Of course, now testicular cancer was very meaningful to me. And I said, well, all right, well, maybe I could serve on the board. I'm also good friends with Mike Craycraft over at the Testicular Cancer Society. Mike, in fact, was the first person who I would consider to be like a subject matter expert uh, when I got my diagnosis. Because my friend Dan, who I was talking about earlier, connected me to Mike. And, you know, through him, I went to a conference with TCAF and that's where I met Kim. And so, so many things happened because of this diagnosis, um, not just serving on the board, but helping to uh, build up the conferences, uh, moderating, like you said, or in, when we do the in-person conferences, I'm happy to MC if, if, if Kim would like me to do so, um, or I should say, or the board, whatever, you know, the board says, um, but meeting so many other people and opening so many, so many different doors into uh, testicular cancer and had it not, and let me tell you this, had it not been from my cancer diagnosis, one, I may just be a regular Air Force Reserve medic having this part-time job, but I got enrolled into the Air Force's Wounded Warrior Program because of my diagnosis, and I became the comedy coach for the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. And in that program, as part of the resiliency programs, I teach wounded, ill, and injured service members how to use improv comedy as a healing tool. So on one hand, like I teach at the Second City, uh, we teach you know, improv for more of a performance standpoint. But there's, as we all know in, in the arts, you can learn so much more for, from an art than just performing or just doing it. What is it that we get from this art? So I teach applied improv comedy 
specifically to try to gather and strengthen life skills for folks who are going through a lot of similar situations. Although, you know, I might be working with uh, a wounded, ill, and injured service member, or even a caregiver who had been in a traumatic accident. Maybe they lost their leg in a motorcycle accident, or they got blown up on a deployment, or they themselves are dealing with some sort of mental health trauma. I could still use the skills of improv that I that I love and adore, and that I have will continue to study for the rest of my life to help people that way. So both the comedy and the laughing, but really the team building, the trust, the camaraderie, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I continue to do that too. And through this cancer diagnosis, I serve on the artist council for the armed services arts partnership, which is fantastic. And uh, I'm a co-founder for mission warriors, another nonprofit that helps military and veteran communities use healing arts as a way to be proactive against, uh, you know, uh, situations such as, uh, like, like we discussed. So it's, it's, um, it's been a wild ride and, and I, it's so weird to kind of step back and see everything that kind of came from a diagnosis. So if you're out there and you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis, it's very easy for us to say, and it still is for me, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everything is, you know, peach pie and vanilla ice cream. Like it's, I'm not saying everything's great because there are still days that we all struggle and that I still continue to deal with stuff, but it's very easy to say, well, what the hell did this happen to me for? Instead of saying, why did this happen to me? Ask yourself, why is this happening for me? And that really helped me to say, holy crap, like look at all of these opportunities that happened because I was diagnosed with cancer. That's awesome. You already, you took my next question out of my, out of my mouth. I was going to say, do you have any advice for anybody facing it? But I think, you know, you, you nail it right there. Well, and you hit it earlier too, Steven, you got to be an advocate for yourself. You know, I think that really is a big one. Um, I was single. I don't have any family out here in Los Angeles. I got a ton of friends, my improv community, my improv family really, uh, you know, were with me during a lot of this, but yeah, I'd, I think having a good community is, is going to be important and, uh, you know, advocate for yourself and don't be afraid to uh, think about self-care as another doctor's appointment, something that you have to do to be able to take care of yourself. Cause it's easy to be like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to lay down and watch TV. And, and that could be, you know, therapy for some people, but maybe there's a way to apply this in a way to change your thinking, try to help you out. I really got into like meditation and practicing mindfulness. I'm not saying I do it all the time and I'm certainly not great at it, but I'm trying to be better at it. I'm working on it slowly. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, being the first guest. I think this was a great first episode. Where can uh, people find you? If you have questions, if you want to reach out, if you just want to share your experience, I'm all about it. Of course, Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation, we have an awesome Testicular Cancer Support Group on Facebook. Um, if you're not on Facebook, we are trying, we are, uh, trying to see what other options might be out there. But reach out to me and keep in touch because I'd love to um, connect with anybody, whether you're a, a patient, a survivor, uh, a caregiver, or even researchers. You know, we, we like to keep that um, research option open to folks who are trying to understand what this is so that they can advocate for people, whether they're researching on the science side or if you're a provider uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, I'm on all of those at 
BJ Comedy is my username across most of them, but BJ Lang on Facebook is my is my page. So looking forward to talking to all of you. You can email me at BJ at BJLang.com. Got your own website with your own email address, man. You are killing it. Hey, thanks again, man. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate what you're doing and uh, keep fighting out there, everybody. For more information, visit TestisCancer.org. You can also follow us on social media at TestisCancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.